I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to Andy Staples on 3. It is SEC Preview Day. Peter Burns from the SEC Network will join us. And later, Devin Leary, Kentucky quarterback extraordinaire. The Wildcats have reunited with offensive coordinator Liam Cohen. Devin Leary comes in. Can he do what Lil Levis did in Levis's first year as a transfer at Kentucky, working with Liam Cohen? It's possible. But first, let's talk about the conference that Devin Leary came from. If you remember, he was playing for NC State for most of his career. They are in the ACC. The ACC got in the news again on Wednesday because, according to Pete Thamel of ESPN, a group of ACC, ACC presidents met to discuss the potential additions of Cal, Stanford, and SMU to the conference. Now, this would not be a full-share addition. Cal and Stanford would get a reduced rate. And SMU, according to Thamel, would get nothing in terms of conference TV money for the first seven years. And look, SMU's got some well-heeled boosters. They can float it. I understand they feel like they're making an investment. For Cal, for Stanford, for SMU, I get it. For the ACC, I do not. (laughs) And remember, this was bandied about before at a group of schools, Florida State, Clemson, North Carolina, North Carolina State were the ones that wound up blocking it. If any one of those were to flip their vote, the ACC could add these schools. Here's the thing, though. It does not make sense to me. It's, it's in the uncanny valley of conference realignment. What is the uncanny valley? If, you, if you've studied film, you, you've come across that term. But basically, what it means is if we see something that looks completely inhuman it doesn't really phase us it could be a monster whatever it might scare us but it doesn't give us that visceral reaction if we see something that looks sort of human but not really it makes our stomachs turn a little bit that that movie cats the movie version of the play cats this is what happened is everybody just dove into the uncanny valley and was like i can't unsee that That makes my stomach turn, seeing people that, yeah, they're supposed to be cats, but they kind of look like humans, and it's too close. Well, that's this is where we're at in the world of conference realignment. There are certain things that if I pitched them to you, you'd go, there's no way that's possible. That's dumb. Not going to happen. That would be like the Ivy League merging with the Sun Belt. Not going to happen. Never going to happen. That would be your, your giant swamp monster that doesn't really resemble a human at all. But adding Cal, Stanford, and SMU to the ACC, that's kind of like adding UCLA, USC, Washington, and Oregon to the Big Ten. It's not that far-fetched. It's kind of like, over a couple-year period, adding UCF and Utah to the Big 12. It's weird, 
but it's kind of kind of makes sense. And I think the part that makes sense, though, about the Big 12 the way it is and the Big 10 is there seems to be some connective tissue, at least across the country. The, the Big 10, you, you do start in Piscataway, but then you bounce to State College and then you bounce to Columbus and then you bounce to Evanston and then you bounce to Iowa City and then you bounce to Lincoln. It's a long bounce to Seattle or to Los Angeles, but it's it's not Louisville to Dallas to Palo Alto. And I think SMU's being thrown in here just to make it look somewhat more agreeable geographically. But the fact of the matter is, most of Cal and Stanford's conference rivals would be on the Atlantic Coast, hence the name Atlantic Coast Conference. Palo Alto and Berkeley are each within, I think, I think Palo Alto's 33 miles from the Pacific and Berkeley's about 18 from the Pacific Ocean. It doesn't make sense. It looks sort of like the other realignment moves, but it's not quite normal enough. And it doesn't make any sense in terms of you're going to give SMU no conference TV money, but they're going to get a vote in everything the conference does. If you're Florida State or Clemson, who's trying to get out of the ACC right now, you're looking at that and going, no, no, no. We, we're not giving three more votes out. So I still am very confused by this. Uh, according to, to everybody who's been reporting on this, this decision could be made within the next week or so. I can't get anyone to explain to me how it works practically, and I, I get it. Piscataway to Los Angeles doesn't make a lot of sense either, but it makes more sense than this. This is a weird Weird construction where I, a lot of schools want to be in business with Cal and Stanford, and I get it. And SMU, great donors, lots of money. I get that too. But it just isn't practical. What is practical would be Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, and Washington State pooling what's left of the Pac-12's assets, their branding, their... NCAA tournament units and merging with the Mountain West and calling that the Pac-16, but letting the Mountain West people and Gloria Navarra as the commissioner run it because they're better at running a conference than the people who are running the Pac-12. That, that makes sense. That It's practical. And I realize those are not the schools that Cal and Stanford envisioned being in a league with. They were among the ones that botched the whole Pac-12 deal. Their presidents and all of the presidents in the Pac-12 are at fault. You can blame Larry Scott and George Klyavkov all you want. And they should get blame because their job was to convince the presidents when they needed to convince them of something. But the presidents in the Pac-12 were the ones who got an offer from ESPN and said, no, 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 go back. We want $50 million per school which was completely unrealistic. They got themselves into this mess. And it's not each individual school's fault, but this is not a, a viable solution. Having Stanford and Cal athletes going all the way across the country, in football, it makes sense. You're just you're playing you know, five road trips a year, six road trips a year. In other sports, it makes zero sense. So if it were a football-only membership, 
and the rest of their sports were going to the West Coast Conference or something to give maybe give Gonzaga somebody to play with. That would make more sense. This doesn't it doesn't compute. It's not so crazy that it'll never happen because obviously they're still talking about it again. But it is just far enough over the line that it just doesn't work. So good luck talking about it. If you decide to do it, please somebody come on the show and explain to me how it's going to work. I'd love to know. But it doesn't make any sense. You know what does make sense? Peter Burns of the SEC Network talking about this coming SEC season, which could be very, very exciting. We've got a lot going on in the league. The last year before Texas and Oklahoma enter, the last year of divisional play, Georgia, the favorite to win the national title again, Alabama and LSU, going to duke it out at the top of the West. The other teams in the West all seeming somewhat similar. Peter made a very bold prediction on Twitter earlier this week involving Alabama and Auburn. You're going to want to hear it because it's going to be one of those where you go, I can't believe he said, wait, a, hmm, you know what? It's the Alonzo morning gif when you think about it. We'll be right back with Peter Burns. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We are talking SEC, and who better than the face of the SEC network, Peter Burns? How are we doing, Peter? Uh, I'm doing well. Look at that. Man, you are big time fancy here. The on three stuff, the amount of technology you have now when the font comes out, it's like your groans up and your groans up and your groans up. It's like swingers when they're over there in, in the California oh, yeah. grill or whatever. Does that mean that means Heather Graham's showing up anytime, sometime soon? Or that, that's that means you got Spoilers. Uh, East Coast and West Coast representation. Um, what's, uh, <laughs> exactly. I'm actually over here at the studios. I'm at like the one quiet place. Is we got uh, Matt Stinchcomb is somewhere back over there, probably yelling. Takeo Spikes is probably out here, you know, in the snack bar or something like that. So I'm sure they'll come on here and give me some hell here in a couple minutes. Beautiful. Well, it, it, Stinchcomb needs to come on either as Mac Brown or Steve Spurrier. For those who don't know, Matt Stinchcomb is a master. Like he's the Dana Carvey of college football. So if you don't know, his impersonations are incredible. His impressions are unreal. And so at any time that any of us at ESPN know, if Matt Stinchcomb calls you, you do not pick up. Like you don't pick up because you know you, in fact, you hold, you go and quickly send it to voicemail because you know he's not calling you because he wants something. Like if he wants something, he'll text you or he'll email you, mm-hmm. but mostly text. But if he calls you, that means he's on like some two-hour trip to our studios, and he's bored as hell. And he'll give you <laughs> Mac Brown, he'll give you Jimbo Fisher. He's got a, a damn good Kirby. He's working on the Must Champ, and still had that in the repertoire. So he's, uh, yeah, he's uh, he needs his own little uh, variety show here at the SEC Network. Yeah, I, it's funny because as those coaches have gotten more and more successful, he's been less willing to do the impressions in public. 
which yeah. his Kirby is is perfect. By the way, you if you just if you don't have a picture of him doing it, you assume it is Kirby Smart. Uh, before we're done today, at the end of this interview, I'm going to try to see if I can, um, you know, just ambush him here and see if I can get a little Kirby Smart for him. And I'll just tell him that we're going to edit it out, but then we'll actually air it in the actual interview. So it'll be perfect. Oh, it's brilliant. So I'll, I'll take the heat for it, and I'm happy to take the heat for it from Stench. Yeah. And, it, you know, College Football Hall of Famer, very mad at me. It'll be okay. But, no, it's, it, it is tremendous. You, and you, you have quite a collection of talent at the SEC Network in terms of, people who played at different schools who can, who can be very, I, I'm sure the arguments get, cause you've got, you've got stench for Georgia. You've got Keo spikes for Auburn, Roman Harper, Alabama, Chris Doring, Florida. I, I bet it gets pretty, uh, pretty heated in there sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and, and it used to be, listen, we used to have Booger McFarland for LSU and we had Marcus Spears. And, and so we've gone through a, a, a bunch of, you know, with Harper and, and everything like that with Roman in, in Alabama. So um, yeah, it does. In fact, one of the things that we're working on tonight is like the loudest environments and a, a crowd environments in the SEC. And it's not toughest stadiums, right, Staples? Because right. like, if you go toughest stadiums, like the, it's you know, every stadium is loud at a certain extent. Like I could say that Auburn last year when Cadillac was the was the interim head coach was as loud as I've ever heard Jordan here. Like yeah. it was nuts when they won that game. But does that constitute always being that loud? But he's like, no, this year or this tonight on the show, he's going to break it down like what's the loudest stadium with the current team that they have right now in the current like mm -hmm. environment that they're at. I think he's going to go LSU, which is interesting because he's, and he knows already that his Twitter account or X account or whatever is just it's going to be unusable for three days because Georgia Bulldog fans are going to be all pissed off that he wasn't the absolute homer like. McElroy was the best at that when, when he worked for us for SEC Network, and of course now he does the ESPN stuff, is he would purposely go out of his way to not talk Alabama because he mm -hmm. didn't, didn't want to be you know, looked at as, oh, here, here's Homer, you know, Greg McElroy saying that Alabama is the best. Well, naturally, when he would work with us, Alabama traditionally was the best. He just would make sure he'd go out of his way um, to, to, to not mention that. Yeah, and, and I I'm the same way. I I I feel like I'm harder on Florida than I am on anybody else because I don't want people to just be like, oh, you know, you're just you're just you know caping for the hometown team. Although I it's funny because now with Vegas saying Florida's going to win five and a half and and everybody down, I'm like I'm actually a little more up on Florida than than the average person, which is a switch. Yeah, because, and it's the same thing, and it, it's funny, too, especially knowing that Cam Risen might not play in that game and maybe their mm -hmm. backup quarterback is not. I'm like, uh, maybe they, they could just pull a rabbit out of the hat, and all of a sudden, then you start convincing yourself, like, well, maybe Graham Burtz is really pretty good, and if they you know, go over there and they win that game, they have this kumbaya moment, and all of a sudden it all clicks for Billy Napier, and it, it leads to this incredible season – I think it's the same way to where the outside media that doesn't follow the SEC a lot will look at it and go, yeah, Florida's not good. The same way they're talking about A&M, right? I mean, last two seasons, we talked about A&M being ranked sixth at the beginning of it, and they flamed out horrifically bad year to five and seven. And so naturally, they become kind of like this nationwide punchline of, oh, it's Jimbo Fisher and are him and Bobby Petrino going to have WWE wrestling before the first game? Like, it's, it's an overblown storyline, and I think that's one of the reasons why I don't gamble. But if I did, I would say there's probably some value that the whole nation looks at A&M 
not the way they should because I think they're talented this year, but they look at through the prism of the last two years being woefully underperformed. Yeah, and the thing is, like, you take that same person and you put them at the door to A&M's buses as they get off the, the, the bus to go to the yep. stadium. That person's going to go, oh, my God, never mind, they can win the national championship. <laughs> like, it's, it's, they're, they're that talented, which tells you how dysfunctional it was. Yeah, and it's funny. The get off the bus thing is a real thing, right? Yeah. Like as a, as a fan, you know, you didn't get a chance to see it a lot close. But that was one of the things that was a real privilege when I got working here for the SEC Network is that I got to go to every single one of these campuses. I got to see spring ball, and all of a sudden, I remember vividly one week that I was over at Mississippi State, and I think it might have been one of Mullen's last teams. They were pretty good, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. had a, a solid run. And I remember the next week, me and Jordan Rogers went to Kyle Field in College Station. And I looked and I was like, oh, this, these are two different teams. This is, the, the get off the bus thing is real. Now, that doesn't mean it's always going to mean something. And then you get into even SEC championships and you see guys like Georgia and you're like, that, how was that a college team? That's an NFL right. squad. You know, it, it's, it's the, real, the get off the bus thing is definitely a real thing. Yeah, and that's the thing with A&M, where you can't ever discount them. And, and look, A&M-LSU last year is a prime example of that. LSU, good team. There are first-round draft picks on LSU's team. They've won the SEC West already, and they go into A&M, and A&M handles them. Because A&M has really good players, and for once, they put it together. Yeah, and, and, that, and they're dangerous, right? Like, when you talk about the SEC, I think there's only three teams, right? I think it's LSU, I think it's Alabama, and Georgia, in, in whatever order, probably Georgia being out, out at first. But then you go, are there teams, right? Like, if all of a sudden Hugh Freeze gets something going, that Hugh Freeze is going to have a dangerous Auburn squad. Lane Kiffin's mm-hmm. going to have a dangerous squad right now. Arnett in defense – I mean, my God, Sam uh, Pittman with K.J. Jefferson and Rocket Sanders, that's as good of a one-two duo as you're going to have in the country. Yeah, it, it is. The, the danger of kind of any team can beat you. It's not, it's not top to bottom like that, but it goes probably 10 deep. Where, where you, you know, anything about Missouri-Georgia last year is a great example of that. If Dominic Lovett doesn't get hurt, Missouri may beat Georgia last year. Where do you think that line is, right? I mean, I, I would say Vanderbilt is is below that line as Clark Lee is trying to yeah. rebuild that thing and they're getting new facilities. Missouri might be on that line, but you just brought up the fact they damn near beat Georgia last year. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, I mean, I don't know how the hell you rank somebody seventh in the SEC West. Like, I always wish that there was like this um, exchange <laughs> program program. You and I have talked about that. Like, yes. could you take – two or three teams in the SEC West and say, hey, the Pac-12 needs a couple of teams next year. Like, let's go throw them out there and see how they would yeah. do in other conferences. And I guess we'll get that a little bit in the, in the college football playoff uh, when it expands. Hey, but, we'll, get it, we'll get it week two. Arizona's going to Starkville. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a real interesting litmus test, you know, right off, right off the bat that I'm looking forward to seeing. Yeah, it's, it is really interesting. So you chum the water uh, on X – I, I still, I, I'm going to call it Twitter. Uh, on Twitter the other day, with you said, I think Auburn may throw for more yards than Alabama, which is one of those, like, you read it, and I'm like, oh, Peter's trolling so bad. And then I think about it, I'm like, wait a second. No, actually, the real Alabama fans are going to be like, thank you, Peter, for recognizing that we're going to run the damn ball this year. It, it's crazy, because I said it out loud on the show, and I'm like, 
I say a lot of crazy shit. Sorry. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to Yeah, it's, it's fine. Out, right? We're good. And I'm like, do I really believe that, right? And all joking aside, I started going through it, and I'm like, am I crazy? And I think that's how I put the t- text or the tweet out or the X out or the post. And I said, am I crazy to think that Auburn will have more passing yards? And I'm like, A, you know, you go and, and say Peyton Thorne's going to be the guy, mostly mm-hmm. because you know you already have a dual threat in Robbie Ashford, but didn't pass the ball well. Hughes had success throwing the ball. There was also a fantasy footballism to it, to the fact of I think Auburn's going to be down in a bunch of games. So they're going to have to throw the ball a whole heck of a lot. And on the flip side of it, if we still don't know that anyone's proven it to Nick Saban that they're the signal caller there, and Tommy Reese is probably going to be more conservative and how good is the offensive line, Alabama's going to probably run the hell out of the ball. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. And I would say this, you're damn right that educated Alabama fans were like, you're right. Like, ideally, I hope we run the damn ball, Paul, because they're they're like, this is what we've been praying for, Peter Burns. Thank you so much. (laughs) And and then I got and I got the, you know, the the fine bomb callers, the traditionals that are like, wow, you hate Alabama. And, you know, just you're such an LSU guy. I was like, no, this is like a compliment. Like there was nothing worse, Staples, than when Alabama wanted to run the ball on LSU in some of these great rivalry games. You knew you couldn't stop them. You were mm-hmm. you were done. The game was over. And I vividly remember sitting next to my wife in, in Baton Rouge this year or last last season. And there were three different drives where all Alabama has to do is get one or two first downs. And it's basically a done deal. And they couldn't get it done. And I was like, oh, this is like when Yvonne Drago like starts bleeding and you're thinking Rocky <laughs> might actually have a shot. So it scares me that they're going to get back to that style of football because I think they're they're pissed off. Well, and that's what everybody makes fun of me because I keep pointing out that Nick Saban seems generally happy right now. And I find that to, to be dangerous for the rest of the league. But I, I just, I, I feel like he knows something we don't. Yeah, I, I think maybe part of that, I mean, you know, part of it is maybe a new outlook on life or maybe he bought, he bought the house in Jupiter and he goes, hey, this is my last <laughs> Everybody's year. Everybody's at the $15 million beach house. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I got the Ferrari dealership or traveling to Europe now. Like this is going to be my new life. I'm just going to enjoy and smell the roses while I'm here, right? That's the conspiracy theory. Um, but I think the more telling thing to me was when we talked to J.C. Latham, the offensive lineman mm-hmm. at Alabama yep. at, at Media Days, and he was in our face like, we're pissed off. We're going to win the Joe Moore award. Like, and I had never heard an Alabama player talk like that. Like in the, in, in the decade that I've been here at the SEC network, it was always, we don't talk about anybody else. We don't give a highlight. We don't give a sound bite, whatever. And I'm like, Saban particularly picked this guy and they knew exactly what this guy was going to say. There's always a plan at Alabama. And the fact that they were so far in everybody's face, like this is what we're going to do. made me think like, Oh, like it made me rethink that LSU winning the West in my original pick because I was like, oh, they know something that I don't think everybody else knows right now. And I think I think a lot of people have have gone because I if you asked me in March, I would have said LSU is going to win the West. And it's not like I've gotten a whole lot. And he hasn't invited me in to watch practice or anything. Saban hasn't. But just by the vibes alone, you feel like, OK, Alabama feels like they've got something different. And, and what you mentioned about Latham is interesting because they have tried to gin up that level of disrespect before. And we kind of laugh at it. Nobody's had to fake that this time around. 
No, this is not Kirby or one of the players at Georgia when they're like undefeated and they're just cruising right now. Be like, oh yeah, people thought we were going seven five. Like, come on, that was a bunch of BS. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a legit. You know, hey, they hear it. I mean, I, you know, Josh Maxson, part of Alabama football, loves it every time that I talk bad about Alabama. He's like, do it. We just love it. We yeah. love it over here. Cannot get enough of it, right? Like he's the guy in charge of Alabama football communications. And I, when I hear that from guys like that, it makes me think, uh-oh, all right, they, they, they don't get too far ahead of your skis, right? And, yep. again, I, I, think, I think the – and I want your thought on this. I think Kirby going back-to-back and doing so well energizes Saban to a certain extent that keeps it new. And, and there's an interesting new level of the video game, you know, for lack of a better term for him. I, I have always said that I think Nick Saban is at his best when he has a problem to solve. And I think there's a, there's a couple problems to solve. Kirby is the main problem, whether people want to admit it or not. You know, I, I go back to the class of 2020. They had you know, some multiple players that, that both teams were in on. Jalen Carter was one of them. Darnell Washington was one of them. Cedric Van Pran, the, the Georgia center, was one of them. And, and that Georgia beat them. And I know Alabama beat Georgia on some of those guys. But if you take – Kirby Smart away, if it's mm-hmm. if it's you know a Mark Richt type coach at Georgia at that time, those players are probably all on Alabama's roster last year, and if yeah. they are, Alabama wins the national title. Like that's the difference. Like they win those two games they lost, they get those four points or or don't give up the four points that they they lost by, and they're just that much deeper. And Kirby's made. Georgia as deep as Alabama was in say 2015, 2016. Yeah. And I mean, even more so. And I think that's why, you know, it's kind of one of these things where like, if, you know, I don't follow a whole lot of racing, but you got guys drafted off each other. And I feel like Saban drafts a little bit off of Kirby's success right now. Then like it pushes them. Like how I, how am I going to change that? How am I going to solve that problem? Like you talked about. And on the flip side, I don't know if Kirby would be, as good and as cutthroat and as competitive if he doesn't feel like he's still in the, in the shadow of the greatest coach in the history of college football. Like, those two are good for each other right now. Like, Ryan Day and, and, and Jim Harbaugh, uh, there doesn't feel like there's this, like, animosity. It's more of like an Ohio State versus Michigan. It's more like the rivalry of the game. I feel like there's something, not necessarily personal, but like this competitive, like when we saw Mickelson and Tiger Woods in golf, like they want to beat the hell out of each other every single time. And their quest for in the process of, of greatness is what provides us, you know, some really damn good teams to watch. Well, and it's it's 365 days on the recruiting show. Like Alabama and Georgia didn't play last year. They may not play this year, but they're always competing against each other. And that's that's the part that that makes it really interesting. This rivalry, you mentioned the bulldogs, the Carson Beck thing. We we've known he was going to be the starting quarterback. It's now official. Yeah. How do you think he does replacing Stetson Bennett? Um, I think well, because of the going back to what we talked about and the fact that I went back and look at like, what did Stetson do as far as his numbers wise? Like last year is an anomaly, right? They gave him the keys. He was, mm-hmm. it was his ninth year there in Athens. Like it was 4,000 yards. It was ridiculous. Right. So I go, that's unfair. But I think it's more fair to go look at what he did that first year when he took mm-hmm. over, right? The first year in 2021. And it was like 2,700 yards, 
um, 20 touchdowns, seven interceptions, something along those lines or whatever. And I go, I think that's what it is, right? Like, you know, Tom Luganville's talked about it, and, and, and I thought it was a really eloquent way of putting it, going, you are surrounded by so much NFL talent. Don't screw up. And, and right. that's not a you, – you don't have to go win anything. You're already guy. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. Like, Vandergriff didn't beat you out. None of the other guys, you know, beat you out. Dylan Rayola or whatever, Rayola the kid, he's not coming until another year. It's just make the plays that are in front of you and move the ball in advance. And by proxy, you're going to have a whole hell of a lot of success. I don't think they have – I mean, they recruit so well. I, I don't know – you just don't screw this up, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing. Now we're, we're handing them the East, but if they have to go to Neyland stadium in November and the East is on the line, that is going to be the, we talk about, you know, your argument about the environments and the the most difficult place, like Neyland stadium in November with the East on the line might be the most difficult place to play in America this year. If it gets a little cool as well, like we get a little weather blowing in. I mean, that place would be i mean just i get goosebumps thinking about it right and so you know and even if it's a one loss right even if even mm-hmm. if you know tennessee has already lost that one game and this could be the tiebreaker like i'm still like pouring out a little liquor that this is the last year for east and west divisions because i'm fascinated about these conversations right like i've been fascinated the last couple of years when kentucky was close and be like mm-hmm. i mean kentucky if all of a sudden things align well they never would align but you know late november if joe milton becomes the guy but here's the interesting part. I'd much rather if I was Tennessee have that want to have that game in week three or four because of by the time you're in week 10, 11 staples, the depth just wins out. Like the, right. the depth you just see, it is just we're going to bring wave upon wave upon wave of four and five star guys that Tennessee still can't do because of, you know, what, you know, the issues they got in with Pruitt and really how, how you know, um, they had to overhaul this whole damn roster. Well, and the other thing is the the depth part of it, the way Georgia will play Tennessee's offense, because they'll say, go ahead and complete those passes underneath. We're just going to tackle you where you stand, and that's going to be that. You're not going to be running you know, your fastest receiver at one of our safeties with a 20-yard head start. Yeah, and, and it's just, it's, you know, it's we're going to allow you and is it death by a thousand cuts that that's fine right i mean like that that that's not going to kill us and the fact that the way they played it i mean i thought that was such an interesting part last year where where georgia was like we're going to punch you right in the face right off the bat off the line of scrimmage and if you beat us brother best of luck to you you're awesome yeah but nobody's beating us today and i think that was the mentality that was a wake-up call for josh heifel's entire roster of like oh we're good but we're not they're good. And, and that, that, that probably was a great lesson for that team to know, you know, because if they keep it close and they look like, oh, this is working, I, I don't know if they can understand it. I think, like, I go back and look at, like, where did, what games did you really learn something? Like, I think Texas learned a whole hell of a lot when Arkansas came up there and just bullied mm-hmm. them a couple of years ago. Remember, like, they were chanting yep. SEC, SEC, they ran for like 600 yards and it was out of control. I think Sark needed to see that firsthand to be like, oh, what I how I thought I could compete. I better really, really start beefing that offensive line and that defensive lineup if I'm ready for the SEC football in 24. Which he has, which will be very interesting when they get to, to Tuscaloosa in week two. Uh, the Joe Milton thing. 
I'm, I'm on the bandwagon after the Orange Bowl. I'm, I'm ready. I'm committed. Where are you on this? Um, I'm in the Josh Heupel. Like I'm, 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 I, I, I've gotten to the point where I look at Tennessee's offense, not because of Hinton Hooker, who was great. I don't want to ever disparage one of the greatest players we've seen growing to the greatest seasons. But I look at Heupel as of the way that I kind of look at Lincoln Riley and the fact of like, in Lincoln, I trust in his offense. Now, Caleb Williams is an incredible freak. But in Hypo, I trust. And the fact yeah. that the schemes will always be good. You know, to a certain extent, how we have it with Lane as well, too. And I look at this, and maybe I'm wrong, but I look at this in the aspect of that they're always going to be good offensively. But when Lane and Ole Miss was good, it was when DJ Durkin was running that defense, and, the, and that's when they won 10 games. I feel like that's the case for Tennessee. It's like the offense is going to always going to score a boatload of points. Do they have the depth to be able to have a speed bump so their offense can continue to score? Yeah, and, and that that is interesting. One of my things is, as the Pruitt players clear out, can Tennessee still be as good on both lines of scrimmage? Because as as bad as the Pruitt era was, they were pretty good at recruiting those line of scrimmage guys. And that the question is, can can the Hypo staff keep doing that? And they can certainly prove that they can this season, but. But yeah, I think you, they you can do like, it in, in week three or four. I think they can yeah. do it early in the season. But the difference is, is you know, I mean, like just like with LSU, that's a big question mark, right? Mm -hmm. LSU and Tennessee are very similar in the fact that they oh. found success. But it also was, hey, how, like, did we do it because we have 85 scholarship guys, the guys we really want? No, we just had really good breaks and we played really good football. Like, you know, they don't have the depth that everybody else. And that, that goes back to what I'm saying. Like, I think they can do it for yeah. three or four weeks, but – you get in late November when guys are banged up and you're having to switch the offensive line a little bit or you don't have that depth to run a bunch of guys uh, you know, and, and make changes on that defensive front, that could be an issue. Well, and LSU has incredible top-line guys. You know, Will Campbell, Emory Jones, Harold Perkins. They're going to be – Mason Smith is back after being yeah. hurt all last year. They're going to have some, some guys the NFL absolutely covets. But I kind of with Brian Kelly – who seems to be tempering expectations by saying, Hey, I don't know if we're deep enough yet. He he's smart. I mean, and again, that's the the first day that Brian Kelly was hired and that's who I wanted. I mean, I, I go back and I was the guy that I was like, Hey, whenever there was an offer, I was like, go get Brian Kelly because they needed the adult in the room. And I felt like Brian Kelly was the adult. You sit down with him. You've done it. I've done it. He's a CEO and you needed a CEO to pair with these incredible facilities and this talent. Right. But I think that he's smart in the fact of, hey, if I go out there and be like, yeah, you know, this is the new future. We're going to beat everybody's ass. Well, that, you know, guess what? When you don't do it, that's going to be right after you. You know, that's Everybody's going to roll after you. So I think that he's tempering that expectations. But I do remember um, Butch Jones, real quick, when Butch was over at Tennessee, I remember interviewing him and he gave me this great thing. We're going to believe we're going to do this. And it's hearts and all these maxims and stuff like that and we turn off the cameras and i asked butch i go are y'all really gonna be that good and he goes i probably not and it was it was it was candor but he goes but here's the deal what do i do do i go out there and temper the expectations or do i have these kids believing that they can be and get this fan base fired up and then all of a sudden recruits are fired up and he's like it's a sales job and i gotta sell this why tennessee's gonna be great again um and so some programs need it, and LSU doesn't and need that. Some, LSU doesn't need it, frankly, at that point. So, all right, 
let me give you a little SEC East. You know, we talked about Tennessee, and and it seems like the thought is that it's Georgia here, and then Tennessee's a, a little bit notch below, and then where do we rank Kentucky, South Carolina, Florida? How do we feel about those those three in there? I still like Kentucky more than Tennessee. I, I think Kentucky's the second. Oh, okay, best wow. Team. And and because I think that they learn the what you know. That blue collar mentality that in the in the the big you know the big blue wall and which Farman had brought there as the offensive line coach before his passing that was the pride of Kentucky football and I think it pissed Mark Stoops off that they didn't have that same that same crew and I think it hurt Will Levis trying to do too much stuff last year by all accounts I think that this is probably as talented of a wide receiver room maybe even more talented than Tennessee's wide receiver room Devin Leary. Um, from everyone I talk to, I don't know it. I don't watch film, but everybody I talk to around that program, I look at and they say they like this kid. Um, and they're they're kind of in that perfect little spot where no one's giving them kind of credit. And I always feel like that's where they're kind of sneaky good. So I actually mm-hmm. like Kentucky just ahead of Tennessee. And I like South Carolina, but, you know, they as good of transfers and good recruiting, I still think there's one or two places where they kind of, you know, lost players. They lost two defensive ends. That, that could have helped them this year. And I think that's where the depth just gets – they just get slaughtered. Uh, and that's why that game against North Carolina at the beginning is so huge for them. All right. Before I let you go, let me, let me give you the one guaranteed to piss multiple fan bases off. Yes. This is now the good stuff. Let's go. Say it, it's one that it, – we've had this discussion on the radio. We've talked about this a bunch. In the West, we have Alabama and LSU. But I'm going to give you the group. Texas A&M, Auburn, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Arkansas. Who you got out of that bunch? Oh, A&M. I, I, go, okay. I, I, go, I, I go A&M. And, and I wish, had there not been some transfers, I would have probably picked Arkansas being that third team because of Rocket, mm-hmm. because I love KJ. Um, you know, with Catalan and some of those guys transferring out, like, it, it's just difficult. For AM, I think they find themselves in, in a good spot. And and everybody says, oh, it's Connor Wegman and stuff. Max Johnson was pretty damn good until he got injured. So it's not as if they don't have another opportunity if something, you know, kind of just, you know, doesn't throttle up perfectly. So I, you know, I'll be an idiot that says it's it's AM. Um, but I I just, you know, I guess fool me once, fool me three times. I'm 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 the dumb guy. Well, and that's a, the, the, I, I don't blame you for going with the talent. The, the, the trick with AM, and it's, it's interesting because this is the same problem Texas has, and we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more when Texas gets into the SEC. But you, you know, for the last you know, 10 years or so with Texas, they've not won the games they're supposed to win. They'll get up for the big ones. AM, same thing. Get up for Alabama, get up for LSU, but you got to beat Auburn and Mississippi State and, and, and those teams. And they have not consistently done that. So that's that's kind of what I'm waiting to see. My, my theory on that is the mercenary theory, right? Interesting. The, mer- okay. the mercenary theory that AM went after, they wanted to be the number one recruiting class so bad. It didn't matter if there was a fit, right? right. It, it was just, oh, I agree with that. We're, we're grabbing the best of the best, right? And I felt like those guys are, if you're a mercenary, you're ready for the big battles. But Everything else is, hey, man, I, I didn't sign up to go play Mississippi State and Starkville uh, at noon. Uh, I mean, whatever. All these cowbells. Nobody, nobody told me about yeah. cowbells. Yeah, like Bama, hell yeah, let's go. LSU, like, yeah, this is a big-time night, nighttime game. I think that's the mercenary aspect of it. 
And A&M hasn't put themselves on such a platform like a Georgia or like an Alabama where they don't have to recruit. They can just select Alabama. I mean, A&M still had to do recruit. I just don't think they were recruiting the guys that they needed. Um, and it's not, not about winning that recruiting ranking now. It's about, you know, guys that want to be there and that are going to fit your scheme. Well, it, it'll be fascinating to watch. I, I mean, Hugh Freeze is back in the SEC at Auburn. Think about that. Hugh Freeze is at Auburn. Look at what he did at Ole Miss. Like, he's at Auburn. Bobby Petrino. I, I mean, exactly. again, like, you know, and again, it's, it's crazy. It just goes to show you, man, like, it, it just means more. Uh, and I don't know if sometimes that's a good or bad thing. Do you but get God, five cents every time you say that? Uh, yeah, there is. It's part of the contract. So, again, <laughs> three more and I get my punch card for the month and I get to be – I get, like, a birthday cake. So, it'll work out good. So. I, I, I figured it was, like, extra topping on your Froger at the, uh, in the cafeteria. Uh, it's all of the uh, Dr. Pepper I'd like to drink at the SEC Championship. Presented by Regents Bank. Yeah. There you go. Look at this. Yeah, th- listen, the SEC NASCAR Venn diagram is basically a circle. So, uh-oh, yeah, we're, we we're, we're moving around the office. Let's see what we got. Okay, hold on. I think I just okay. saw. So, he might be headed. So, this is like the um, the little snack bar that we have. There he is, Matt Stinchcomb, everybody. He doesn't oh, know. yes. So, we're recording live with Andy Staples, so no curse words. Yeah, that, that Andy, uh, real quick. So we were just talking. I'll walk you to makeup because since needs yeah, a lot. Walk of and talk. Well, this is uh, you know, it's like the West Wing. Andy's drink on the cheer wine. Do you want to do a little cheer wine? Uh, cheer wine. Oh, yeah. Andrew. Good. Yeah. Look Solid. at that stenchcomb. You're you're turning into an ACC guy before our eyes with your cheer wine. That's yeah, tough. Let's not let's not get crazy here, Andrew. Um, let's, let's go stitch you in makeup. And I just want to ask you um, if there was one that you have felt lately. Hi, hi, Miss Lori. Miss Lori is the one who makes us look good right here the whole time. Uh, hi, Miss Lori. There was a voice that you feel like you've perfected lately, Stinch. Is that, do you want me to come in there while you're changing? He's changing now. I actually was going to put on my costume now. Um, are, do we feel good about where Kirby's at as far as your voice? Feel good about Kirby, yeah. yeah. Yeah, do you want to give us just, uh, just a, a real quick about Carson Beck coming in? Well, you know, we felt it was a good idea to go on ahead and make that call. Um, you know, we need we need a leader in the huddle. We got a lot of new faces at receiver. Um, obviously, folks don't talk about Brock. They like Brock. They should. We like Brock. Um, but we need somebody to throw him the football because he can't throw it to himself. We checked, and that rule is still in force. You can't do that. And so we got Carson, and he's going to throw the ball to, uh, to to Brock and other people too. Um, there'll be other guys out there. Oh, thanks, coach. Yeah. Appreciate appreciate that. But the um, best, the best part of it is he gets the hoarseness correct because it's Kirby, proper, Kirby yeah. never has has a full voice. He's always yeah. screamed it out. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's again. If you ever know if Matt Stinchcomb ever calls you, you do not answer. Okay, that's all. That's the most important part. All right, I got to get in makeup. People are yelling at me. All right, Peter Burns, appreciate it. See you, buddy. See ya. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. We're joined now by new Kentucky quarterback, Devin Leary. You last saw him at NC State. He's now wearing 
blue. Yeah. All right, Devin, you you are a South uh, South Jersey guy, right? Yes, sir. Grew up an Eagles fan? Yeah, I did. I did. All right, so this is I, – I, I can't ask you this question. Would you boo Santa Claus? No. No? Would I is boo that, Santa Claus? The Eagles fans did that. They, uh, they have historically done this. Man, I don't know. Eagles fans are ruthless, but I don't think – personally, I don't think I could boo Santa Claus. Well, that's a, I think you're trained for this playing for an SEC team now, though, being around Eagles fans your whole life. Like, they they fit right in with SEC fans. Oh, my gosh. They're insane. They're insane. Yeah. I mean, they thrive in adversity, it feels like. <laughs> well, the problem is they're all Georgia fans now because they took the whole roster. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. You got you to deal with that. How, how, is it, how has it been? You know, you, you've been at Kentucky now for, for over six months. How has it been finally getting ready to, to actually take the field with your new teammates? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's been awesome. Uh, we've been having, you know, really good practices, really good approach every single day with, you know, not even just the offense, the defense, special teams. Um, and it's really cool, you know, just to be a part of something new. But at the same time, it's really rewarding to see, you know, how everyone comes with a professional and, you know, a, a good mindset to just get to work each and every single day. So, you know, I'm honored to be here. I'm very blessed to be here. And, uh, you know, it's been awesome being able to work with all these guys and all these coaches. I've heard you say that with your transfer portal experience, basically don't enter the transfer portal without a plan. Yes. What was your plan when you made the decision to leave NC State and, and play that last year somewhere else? Yeah, I think, you know, I was really in a unique situation. Um, you know, when I kind of was – debating on hitting the portal portal or not. Um, our offense coordinator at NC State actually got the head coaching job at Coastal Carolina. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know what was to come, honestly. Um, and kind of having a plan of, you know, kind of talking to my dad and people that I trust, you know, really getting what you want out of the transfer portal in a sense of being developed to an even better player of what I was before I entered the portal. You know, I want to enter offense offense is going to help me develop and get to the next level. Um, you know, being able to spit out the right terminology and making sure that, you know, I'm advancing, not just physically, but also mentally. And I think it's very important if you're going to enter the portal, you know, it's very different from being a high school recruit to now having that college experience, making sure that you have a plan behind you. So you get to Kentucky and, and Liam Cohen is actually coming back to Kentucky from the LA Rams. You yeah. find out as, as you're, as you're going there and Liam, was at Kentucky two years ago and helped, you know, get Will Levis up to speed at Kentucky as a transfer. Uh, how much is uh, the fact that he's already done this with somebody who was transferring for another school help, you know, deal with that transition? Yeah, I think, you know, it helps a lot. I think, you know, he's obviously had the experience of bringing on a new quarterback and, you know, making sure he fits the right role. Um, I think it's really cool that, you know, he has that experience with Will, and obviously he's turned Will into, you know, an NFL quarterback, being able to develop him. And, you know, that's really cool, me being in my position, being able to see someone like Will thrive around Coach Cohen. And at the same time, you get around a guy like Coach Cohen and you understand that, you know, he knows how to adapt to players. He, he knows how to build his offense around our playmakers on the field. And, you know, for me coming in as a quarterback, obviously I want to develop and learn his offense, but – you know, also just take some takeaways on, you know, 
what he gave to Will when he first transferred in or how he kind of taught Will different concepts or different ways to read different plays. You know, for me, I think we all have our own journey at the end of the day, but it was really cool to kind of have that back-end help from Coach Cohen with his previous experience for sure. So he was – I heard him talking about – uh, working with Matthew Stafford at the LA Rams. And one of the things he said that was amazing about Stafford is he could come off the field and onto the sideline and tell you exactly what all 11 players on the defense did on a play. And, and Liam was saying that you're fairly similar to that, where you can see a lot of what's going on. How does, how does that work? Do you just, you kind of catch just a little glimpse of somebody out of your eye and you're like, okay, that, and you remember all of that when you, when you come <laughs> off. Um. Well, obviously, I think it helps with the experience. Um, you know, I played a good amount of college football now, been in a couple of different systems, have seen a ton of defenses. But I think, you know, just making sure that you stay consistent with your process. You know, every single play, you know, I have a pre-snap thought and a post-snap confirmation based off the coverage, based off of what I see and based off our play. And, you know, for me, it's just film study, you know, making sure that you know, at the end of the day, it's just pattern recognition, making sure that I've seen those patterns before, making sure that, you know, I'm writing down the right coverages and making sure that I'm training my mind that when I get out onto the field and I see certain rotations or pressure, that it all just becomes muscle memory. And, you know, really that just comes with reps and experience. And, you know, I'm still challenging myself every day, but being able to come back off the field and give as much feedback to Coach Cohen is just going to help our offense even more. How much do a lot of your teammates know of this offense? How many of them were playing in it two years ago and, and know all the terminology and can help you and, and say Ray Davis, who transferred in from Vanderbilt, to, to get up to speed? Yeah, you know, a good amount. Um, there's there's actually a lot of carryover, which was pretty cool to see, even from the offense they were in last year to what it was when Coach Cohen first got here. Um, a lot of the terminology – you know, kind of marinates together, but at the same time, being able to have guys like Kenneth Horsey, you know, Eli Cox, um, Jatan McLean, being able to be around those guys that have heard this system, that have operated in this system, you know, really just makes it a lot easier for those position groups. And then, you know, for me, just coming in as a new guy, it's really cool to lean on, you know, other quarterbacks in the room like Kaya Sheridan, mm-hmm. uh, Deuce Hogan that have been in this system before. Um, so, you know, we all really just lean on each other, continue to grow every single day, but also just, you know, anytime anyone has a question, it's really cool to have our offense coordinator right at hand to kind of explain, you know, how certain concepts work or, you know, how he sees it being successful. When you were looking at, at various schools to transfer to, how much did you look at rosters, depth charts? Like, for example, how aware of, of Dane Key and Barry and Brown were you when you decided to, to transfer to Kentucky? I mean, those guys were pretty incredible as freshmen and I would imagine ready to take a fairly big leap now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very aware, honestly. Um, that's kind of what I was saying going into the portal, having a plan, making sure that you do your homework. Um, and obviously seeing guys like Dane Key, Barry on Brown on the film, Tavion Robinson as well. I mean, they just stand out at you. I mean, as a quarterback, that's really what you want to do. You want to be the point guard. You want to distribute the ball to playmakers on the perimeter and, you know, what they've, they've done last year, especially Dane and Barry on such a young age, I mean, that's very promising to a quarterback. And, you know, for me, just entering the portal, making sure I do all the right homework, making sure that, you know, I understand the roster and where I could fit in and who's going to be around me. I mean, Kentucky was a no-brainer with having these guys here. We'll be right back with more of our interview with Kentucky quarterback Devin Leary. But first, word from game time. Let's say you want to watch 
the Kentucky Wildcats play this year at Kroger Field in Lexington. You don't have tickets. You want to get tickets right now. Well, it's very simple. You go to the Game Time app, you enter Lexington, Kentucky, you hit Kentucky football, and you see, oh my gosh, I can go to the season opener against Ball State for as low as 19 bucks. And then you say, okay, well, what else can I see? Who else are they playing? Scroll down. SEC home opener against Florida. You can get in for as little as 89 bucks. You click that ticket. It shows you exactly where you'd be sitting at Kroger Field. You move your phone. It's like you're moving your head in the stadium. It's very cool. And then at that point, you're basically one click away from having those tickets, I'd say, in your hands, but they'll be on your phone. And if you need to transfer them to somebody on game day, very easy to do with game time. So download the game time app, find your game, couple clicks, you're done. Oh, by the way, use the code STAPLES and get $20 off your first purchase. That's code STAPLES, $20 off your first purchase. Download the game time app today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed and use that code staples for $20 off your first order. So you're in a non-contact Jersey at practice. So I imagine that probably not a lot of fear here, but when you see Dion Walker on the other side of the line of scrimmage, what, what goes through your mind as a guy who, you know, somebody gets hit by that guy. Yeah. It's, it's a big dude. <laughs> big dude <laughs> that covers a lot of space. And, you know, I think the coolest thing, especially competing against him every day, people don't realize how athletic he is. I mean, the dude never stops working his hands. He never stops, you know, moving towards the ball. And, you know, I think there's kind of a stigma around bigger guys like him that, you know, once you kind of you get him in, in to the trenches, he can't really move that much. But that's the exact opposite of Dion. honestly. He uh, can disrupt many, many plays by himself and – you know, just standing across from him at the ball is a little bit intimidating for sure. Yeah, when they were putting him on the edge last year at the end of the season, I was like, <laughs> yeah. what in the world is this? Yeah, but he, you're right, he can he can move. And that's I imagine that's sort of a shocking thing when, when you're an opposing quarterback. And maybe you've seen it on film, but to see it in real life, yeah, you know, five yards away from you is pr pr probably a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, that's just who he is, though. I mean, you get around the dude, everything that he does, whether it's, ping pong in the locker room or you know working a one-on-one -on -one at practice he's going to give it his, his all he's going to you know compete with everything he does and you know he knows what he wants to get out of this game and I think you know every single day he comes in with the right mindset of wanting to get better and it's really fun to compete against all right before I let you go we, we got to do this we got to rank the Kentucky Wildcats in locker room ping pong who who <laughs> who is the guy you do not want to go against see a lot of the specialists are really, really good. Of course. So, <laughs> they have I mean, that's kind of that's kind of just about every team. So I mean, I gotta give it to them, but I've been going back and forth with Tavion Robinson. So we kind of been having a battle. So I don't know. It's up in the air for sure. Well, and that's so now does he put any stake like listen, you gotta target me at least ten <laughs> times in the first game if I beat you here. No, no. He knows. I think all the receivers know. Every single route, every single play, everyone should expect the ball. So we can't do that. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, how exciting is it for you when you look? You can look out at, at that group and say, I, I am excited to throw you the ball and you the ball and you the ball and you the ball. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, like I said, it's such, you know, really awesome from a quarterback's perspective to be able to have so many different threats and so many different weapons. But you know, what's really cool about this group is they celebrate each other. 
you know, certain routes, certain concepts aren't always designed for everyone. Although anyone could get the ball, there's certain routes that, you know, you got to get the other guy open. Yeah. You know, it's really cool to be a part of this group because there's such a close knit group that when someone does a certain route or a certain block or technique for another receiver, you know, they cheer on each other. And that's really, really cool to be a part of. And at the end of the day, like I said, it's my ball. It's my job to just get the ball out to those guys and make plays. It sounds like it's a pretty fun job. Devin Leary, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. While we're on the subject of the SEC, it's time for a little Andy Goes to the Movies because an SEC program prominently featured on Netflix, a lot of the wider world viewing, binging Swamp Kings, the four-part, three-hour documentary about the Urban Meyer era Florida Gators. And there's been a lot of talk in Florida circles about this documentary, what it would be. Would it be a hit piece that focused mostly on the off the field behavior of those teams, which there was quite a bit going on there? Would it be a puff piece that focused on them winning two national titles in three years? Where would it fall? And it it was interesting watching this when it fell somewhere in the middle. And I will be the first to admit that I am not the target audience for this documentary, just like I was not the target audience for that Johnny Manziel documentary. If you were very closely following this stuff as it was going on, it's not going to tell you much that you didn't already know. The The Florida one for me, because I was a beat writer covering the team for three of those seasons. And then my first year at SI was 2008. So obviously I did a lot of Florida stuff as they went on and won that national title. I'd written stories about almost everything they talked about in there. So it wasn't a lot of new stuff. Now there was some behind the scenes footage that, I thought was very interesting and the, the mat drills. I, I don't think I, I was very surprised that we saw footage of that. I had heard stories about it. I'd had players tell me all about it. They described it very accurately now that I've seen the videos, but that part was, was opening. But for the most part, it, it wasn't really anything new, which is weird in a series called untold. But if You didn't follow those teams very closely. Most of that stuff probably was new to you. If you're a Florida fan who just wanted to relive those glory days, you probably liked it too. If you're a major college football fan who watched a lot of those games, paid attention to those teams, I would think it probably left you a little bit wanting because it didn't delve into the the off-the-field stuff that much. The the one mention of Aaron Hernandez was the incident at the Swamp, the bar, not the, the stadium, where... Uh, Tim Tebow talks about Hernandez uh, getting called names. Hernandez ends up punching somebody and Tebow and, and company end up smoothing it over. But that was not obviously the big deal with Aaron Hernandez after he got accused of murder elsewhere. A case from 2007 came back up and, you know, he was basically questioned in this case. He was never identified as a suspect, but there, there is a possibility that Aaron Hernandez did murder someone while a, a player at Florida. It, you, you go back through the investigative materials, it's a distinct possibility. That wasn't really covered. And I, I kind of get that when you get Urban Meyer involved, when he's heavily involved, sits for interviews, gives you all that time, it, you're probably going to want it to be an Urban Meyer infomercial. And, and for that part, it was an Urban Meyer infomercial, which... You know, 
that probably helps him coming off the Jags situation where he got fired. Now they did mention it very briefly at the end that he got fired from the Jaguars, but I don't know that it, it probably isn't going to make somebody watch that and go, well, I've got to hire urban Meyer to be my head football coach. Although maybe that's Matt, that's the hope, but the parts that bothered me more than, than that part, because I can understand if you didn't want to go, all in on the off the field stuff. I get that. And they did cover some of the off the field stuff. Poor Brandon James got a lot of screen time for getting busted for pot. There was a lot worse going on in, in, in with some of those guys. And poor Brandon James, because he agreed to sit for the interview, gets to take the brunt of that, which doesn't seem fair either. But the, the parts that, that bothered me a little more were just, this was a group of people making this thing that clearly didn't understand football didn't understand what made those teams special. Yes, Tim Tebow was special. Yes, Brandon Spikes. Yes, Brandon Siler was special. And, and Brandon Siler, by the way, is the star of this. He's hysterical. His story about taking Tim Tebow to a party for the first time was spectacular. He is the runaway star of this thing. But you know who's not prominently featured? Percy Harvin. There's no one who watched those Florida teams that would go, oh, Percy Harvin was just a role player, which is what they kind of make him out to be. There's a, there's a little section in there about Percy being hurt for the 2009, or 2008 SEC championship game and, and how that is a, is a problem for Florida and how he's coming back for the national title game against Oklahoma. But that's really it. And, and yeah, I don't have inside information on this deal, but my guess is Percy didn't sit for an interview. So they didn't focus much on Percy. But the fact of the matter is, Percy Harvin might have been the most important player out of that bunch. Yes, Tebow was important. Yes, Brandon Spikes was important. But getting Percy Harvin in that, that 2006 class was the biggest coup because he was the number one recruit. He was from Virginia. He wasn't from Florida like Tebow was. And he was probably the most special in terms of just rare football talent of those players. And anybody who watched 2006 Florida, 2007 Florida, 2008 Florida will tell you that the stuff they did offensively does not happen if not for Percy. They were good in 2009, but they were not as good offensively because there's no Percy and there's really no replacement for Percy. And so the lack of Percy in, in the documentary in general, it, I, it, that part bothered me because he was such an important part of the team. And again, I, I do not doubt for a second that Urban Meyer, Tim Tebow, Brandon Spikes, Brandon Seiler, Brandon James, they're not all named Brandon, I promise, but that they, I, I am probably sure that they talked a lot about Percy in their interviews and the people who made the doc said, well, we don't have Percy talking here, so we're just not going to deal with that. But I don't think it tells the story of those teams accurately because he was such an important part. And yes, Tim Tebow and Brandon Spikes came back in 2009, but as soon as Percy went pro, everything was different. Uh, also, not a bunch on the Pouncey Twins. And they, they're, they're mentioned as part of that great 2007 recruiting class, but they were two of the best players of that era. And I, I, I know some people think offensive linemen aren't interesting. This, this show happens to think offensive linemen are very interesting. So 
that part I, I was a little saddened by because I thought that there were important pieces of those teams that just were not really covered and you had three hours to cover them. And so, but I did think that, that some of the interviews were very good that again, Brandon Seiler was awesome. The behind the scenes footage, the locker room footage was very cool to see and, and get that peek behind the scenes. And uh, the, the one thing I will say that I, that I found very interesting that, that I had not heard any of those guys talk about before was in the, the episode that covers the 2009 season, they talk about, it sounds like a little bit of animosity toward the amount of attention Tebow was getting as opposed to everybody else. And it made a lot of sense. And, and notice the players, if you watch, don't blame Tebow for that. And they're, they're right. It was, it was a media construction. It was people like me and everybody else that were putting all the attention on Tim Tebow. But that's not something I had heard discussed. And I do remember as that season was going on, talking to other people, and I think Pat Dooley, the, the longtime Gainesville Sun columnist, says it in the documentary, like that's the most miserable undefeated team in the history of the world. And they really were. They, it just felt like it was a complete slog. And that little nugget there, which they spend a few minutes on, does kind of give you a glimpse into maybe why or one of the reasons why that was the case. But on the whole, if you're, if you're looking for this thing to break new ground, if you're looking for you know, something revelatory, you're not going to get it. If you're a Florida fan who wants to relive that stuff or a college football fan who wants to relive that particular period of college football, then yeah, you, you'll probably enjoy it. If you don't know anything about college football, which I think is, is the main audience. So remember, when you get that Netflix homepage, it's not all sports fans. It's some, some of the people are looking for love, well, I, they're looking for the reality shows. They're looking for sci-fi shows. They're looking for all kinds of different things. It's not... It's a much more general audience. And so I think just like with the, the Johnny Manziel documentary, if you didn't live and breathe college football when all that stuff was happening, it's all kind of new to you. And it's very interesting. Reframed looking back on it from today. But I do think if you were living and breathing college football back in, in 2005 to 2009, not a lot of that is going to, to really resonate with you. It, it, you'll you'll probably enjoy the behind the scenes stuff, but are you going to enjoy three hours with it? I'm, I'm not so sure. But they gave it a shot, and Andy goes to the movies is is going to continue because we it's just a run of these things. Uh, we're going to move off Netflix for the next one. BS High, the documentary on Bishop Sycamore on Max HBO Max. I don't know what we're calling it these days. That one's an interesting one because I have a, a, a tangential connection to it. Initially, the producers reached out to, to us when I was at The Athletic. Uh, Ari Wasserman and I had written a, a big story on Bishop Sycamore basically the night after they played IMG Academy on ESPN to explain just what the hell happened. And then we spun that off into, into four or five more stories. And so they had reached out to us to, to get some background. And, and I think the idea was we were going to be a bigger part of the documentary, but then they got the Bishop Sycamore coach to sign on and say, I'll only talk to you. And then they didn't need us anymore. And if you've ever talked to Roy, you will understand why they didn't need anybody else because he is, he's something he's a lot. So 
I have not gotten a chance to watch that one yet. I'm very interested to watch that. We'll be back probably next week with a review of BS High, which, by the way, was a line that I wrote in that original Bishop Sycamore story. Uh, but I don't think I was the only one who, who made that connection. So I'm not, not saying anybody needs to, to give me any credit. But excited to watch that one because I have no idea what Roy's going to say. Like, I knew what Urban Meyer was going to say in Swamp Kings. I don't know what Roy's going to say in this thing. So we'll, we'll see. But if, if you're thinking about watching Swamp Kings, I think just, you know, consider what your connection to college football was during that time period. If you lived it and breathed it, weren't a Florida fan, I don't know that you're going to like it very much. If you're a Florida fan wanting to relive it, yeah, go ahead. If you are someone who is just new to the sport, was not around much then, you're probably going to get a kick out of some of that stuff. And, you know, I, I come back to the behind the scenes, the, the mat drills and everything. There's, there's no way they, they would fire a coach for that today. They would, they, they, the, the players would all quit. The, the players would all quit argument on that. I don't think so. And this is one thing. And I'm glad they had a lot on Brandon Seiler. I'm glad Stephen Harris was interviewed in, in this documentary because I'm not sure the guys who are left over from Ron Zook's era get enough credit for what they did for that 2006 national championship team. And so to say that everybody would have just quit in this age of the, the easy transfer, maybe, but some of those guys were just straight up dudes. And some of them probably relished that sort of training and relished that sort of competitive environment. And, that, that's the, the interesting part about that. Urban Meyer inherited, and he's, he has said it. He is, he's given credit where credit was due on that one. But I'm not sure those guys would have quit in this day and age. I think they probably stuck it out and would have wound up a really good team too because there was a group of guys there that were very good players that didn't necessarily all become NFL stars, but they were very good college players. And so we're, we're talking about Siler. Uh, Jarvis Moss, who, who blocked the kick at the end of the South Carolina game in 2006. Uh, Joe Cohen, who came to school as a running back and left as a defensive tackle. So those are the guys that, that really helped make that 2006 team once Chris Leak and uh, me, once Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin and company showed up. But those guys, Dallas Baker, who was interviewed pretty extensively, he's now the, the wide receivers coach at Baylor. He was one of those guys. So that part w was pretty I, – I feel like they did get their due. So, you know, if you want to watch it, you want to devote three hours to it, again, ask yourself what type of college football fan you were in 2005 to 2009, and I think you will have your answer. Thanks so much for joining us today. Tomorrow, big show, Stanford Steve Coughlin. That's right, the newest member of ESPN's College Game Day crew. You know him. You love him. From the Scott Van Pelt edition of Sports Center, Stanford Steve is the man. Also, a former five-star recruit had stars existed when he was coming out of high school in Connecticut as a very, very blue-chip tight end. Also, we're talking Notre Dame. That's right. The Irish are in Ireland. They're about to play Navy in Dublin on Saturday. We'll break it all down for you. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? 
Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.